again to the Real Emergency Vodcast, produced in partnership with Handtevi, Real DX, 410 Medical, and powered by Prodigy EMS. I am Hillary Gates, Director of Educational Strategy for Prodigy EMS. A reminder also that all episodes are available for you for CAPSI credit on Prodigy EMS. And for those of you who are live today, you get a free hour of CE by scanning the QR code at the end of the presentation. It'll be on the slides. Also, make sure you guys check us out on all the social media platforms um, and uh, make sure you uh, watch us uh, on YouTube as well as listen to us in your car if you'd like. Uh, we have podcasts as well uh, with the audio only. So let me introduce our three amazing speakers that we have every, every month. And I'm gonna have Mark introduce a special guest to us today. First, David Spiro is a pediatric emergency physician and professor at the University of Arkansas Medical System. Uh, David felt so strongly about authentic education that he found a way to get videos to the market of real live patient cases, and he founded Real DX. Peter Antevi is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, an EMS physician, and the founder of Pediatric Emergency Standards, and he's the inventor of the Hantevi system. Finally, Mark Peel is a pediatric intensivist at WakeMed in Raleigh, and he's a medical director with WakeMed Mobile Critical Care. Dr. Peel is also founder and chief medical officer of 410 Medical Innovation, a company focused on improving resuscitation and shock and sepsis. Mark, would you introduce Patrick for us? Yes, sure. Um, we're super happy to have Patrick George off on today's podcast. Since we have a, a really interesting trauma case, I asked Patrick if he'd come along. Patrick's a trauma and critical care surgeon at Wake Med in Raleigh with me, and um, also co-director and one of the main presenters on the Behind the Knife uh, podcast, which is focused on all things surgery. It's a really cool platform. So Patrick, thanks for, for joining us. Um, well, Hillary, I'm just going to dip, uh, Hillary, just dip through our disclosures really quick. You mentioned them mostly, but uh, putting those up on the screen, and then I'll hand back to you. You got it. Hey, everybody, if you haven't been here before, you're in for a treat. This is a real interactive uh, presentation. We really want you to chime in. Uh, you may use your, your audio absolutely to chime in, or if you want to type in the chat, you can do that, and we'll ask you for your feedback for sure. So uh, we're about to get started. EMS providers, just think about the last time you had a trauma uh, code. Um, did, you, did you save their lives? Did you have the tools you needed to, to save that person from um, exsanguination? Um, have you ever successfully resuscitated a trauma code? Um, you're about to witness your peers contribute to saving a life that probably um, wouldn't have been saved without something like blood in the field. So let's not delay the excitement any further. Mark, Peter, David, it's all yours. All right. Thanks, Hillary. Uh, I'm going to start here with our learning objectives. Uh, we're talking about trauma resuscitation in the field today. And our objectives are to review the basic initial assessment uh, when you encounter a trauma patient. This can apply um, out in pre-hospital environment or in the trauma room, and I'll have Patrick speak into that a little bit. Um, understand the priority of circulation in hemorrhagic shock, sometimes over airway management. So C in front of A uh, is something we may need to consider in someone with hemorrhagic shock. And then the hot topic of the day is whole blood and EMS, and we're going to think about the value of carrying whole blood forward, um, which is a growing uh, interest in lots of EMS programs. It's still uh, only in a few out in the world, but we're going to present a case from the very first EMS uh, agency, Cypress Creek, in, in, uh, outside of Houston, Texas, who are the pioneers of whole blood and EMS. 
and they have kindly uh, agreed to uh, let us use some of their body cam footage of this patient. We have uh, permission from the agency and the and the patient's family to, to show you what we're about to show you here, which is fascinating. So I wanna thank uh, Zach Dunlap and Ren Neely from Cypress Creek for their innovation in implementing a uh, provider body cam program and the whole blood program. So let's flip over to the video. What, what we're gonna about to see is uh, the body cam worn by one of the EMS supervisors who arrives in the supervisor vehicle with uh, one of the medical directors. Uh, they've been called to the scene of a home invasion with a gunshot wound. And we're gonna encounter supervisor and medical director uh, walking up to the home where a paramedic and EMT have begun to stabilize this patient. And what I'll do is kind of stop and start the video and we'll throw out some questions to the audience. Hillary, you can uh, um, share with us what's coming in on chat and anyone else that wants to contribute, uh, please do. So pay attention here. I've got subtitles in where it's hard to where it's hard to uh, hear the audio and we'll uh, have fun with this. Okay. So do you see how what I'm thinking I'm dying. with the way that the gun the gunshot wound is? Please. All right. Let's set the scene up here. So he's been shot in the right arm. There's an entrance wound, which you might've glimpsed uh, slightly earlier, right below the deltoid on the left, sorry, on the left arm. And there's no exit wound that they've noted, no blood anywhere on the bed or the floor. His pressure is 85. He's saying, I'm dying. His heart rate's 120. It was a detail that wasn't shared as well. So I just wanna throw that out there, um, Patrick. What are you thinking at this moment if this guy shows up in your in your um, trauma bay? Well, I think you mentioned first he he says I'm dying and he's in he's in some acute distress there. Uh, he is uncomfortable appearing and and when patients say that when they're mentating enough to clearly voice that concern and say I'm dying, oh, a lot of times something's really wrong there. And certainly we know you know we're worried about a ballistic wound here and and uh, this will you know turn out to be quite the case, but that has to be taken very seriously. Uh, and so we're worried about the same thing that you guys are worried about here on the field right now. And that's, that's our primary survey, A, B, C, D, E, F. Right. And Patrick, uh, you, you mentioned that I'm dying. All you EMS providers out there chime in. What else scares you right here? I'm looking at the guy's uh, skin color, which is horrible. And he's really squirmy, right? Those are kind of three things that uh, uh, make the pucker factor increase for sure. I also want to note, she, uh, the, the paramedic here notes, he has lung sounds on the left. She's thinking, where did that bullet go, right? And she notes that there are lung sounds. We'll see a little bit more of the exam here coming up and pay attention to his mental status. As, Mark. As, yes. Yeah, Mark, so I have, a, I have a couple of questions here. So obviously this video that we're seeing um, starts several minutes after the arrival of the first team, correct? correct? Correct. Right. So do you have that time frame? I mean, you may not have that, but I'm, I'm just wondering because the guy is already packaged up. Right. Yes. He's, you know, they're already, you know, it kind of looks like they're already ready to move him. She already has the blood pressure that you mentioned. 
What was that time frame out of curiosity? How much time were they on scene before this video came? Peter, out? I don't know that. I don't know it exactly, but I think it's around 10 minutes. So, right. So, I mean, you know, at some point when we talked to, to, the, to the folks who gave us this video, which I'm very grateful for, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, um, how much distress he was in when they first got there until they finally- As compared to now, right. As compared to now, right. because I mean, you know how it goes, right? Suddenly- they they kind of they're on that curve and then they slope downwards and then all of a sudden the shit's hitting the fan so that's an interesting point yep. pay attention now to his mental status and the comments of our paramedic here on the left is once she's in the truck he's got crepitus under his left axilla feel this crepitus here yeah okay well we know that one's down yeah all right pull aside Get your lines, get your blood. I've got a 16. Okay. Sounds good. Let's hook our blood in. Can you come over to the side? Blood's working. Good. We'll keep those pads on, but that's fine. Yep, but uh, his cardiac arrest right. will be from exsanguination. His cardiac arrest will be from exsanguination. Let's talk through this next couple minutes. And Mark, will you um, tell us who's speaking? Because someone clearly yeah. arrived on scene. Was that a supervisor or someone? No, the supervisor and one of the medical directors are there. The guy in the blue is one of the docs. Got it. Um, and... So now, a minute later, we have him in the vehicle. He's no longer talking. He's coughing. They've noted crepitus under the left axilla. And the paramedic over on the left says, we're losing him. And she's assessing that, I believe, by his mental status. Um, the defib pads are being put on. And the physician says, great, get those on. But his cardiac arrest will not be from V-fib. It will be from exsanguination. So he's thinking there's blood going somewhere. What do you guys, what do you guys think about the scene so far? Well, well, I mean, my, my first thought is, and it kind of, it's, it's exaggerated by the fact that this physician said that is what are our priorities here? Right. Obviously right. it's a trauma, it's a, it's a trauma patient. Everyone's got that 10 minutes. I got to be off the scene really quickly. Um, and then obviously now, just like Patrick said, you know, we, we have to go through what are the priorities here and what's this guy going to die of? So I think that this is a great point to stop and have that discussion. Patrick, yep. do you want to comment on just this crepitus, the lone entry wound, and the hypotension and ultramental status? Oh, yeah. There's there's lots to – I mean, the, the fact that uh, whoever this was pointed out that his cardiac arrest will be from exsanguination is is very – that's impressive, and that's extremely important. The number one cause of preventable deaths in trauma patients is, in fact, exsanguination. And so we're going to get into the use of pre-hospital blood here, but what a what a – uh, great privilege to be able to have that in a scenario like this, because uh, that is spot on. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, we, we, he has crepitus and a, and a wound on the left. So the assumption and the, really, we know that he has some type of uh, injury to the longer airway on the left side and that that bullet uh, somehow got into the left chest. And so we are always a second, those trauma patients who are penetrating trauma patients especially GSW patients roll into the trauma bay. One of the first things I talk, talk about to our residents and APPs is to find the holes. So finding those holes is extremely important because that can give you a good sense of trajectory of the bullet. If you have I two- think, By the way, I think he had been rolled and, and no one had seen an exit wound, by the way, and if we didn't show that. Right, and, and, and to that point too, Mark, we avoid the use of entrant, exit, et cetera. But you know, uh, in this circumstance, there's only one hole, that's, that's gonna be the entrance wound. And so if you don't have two holes, the presumption is there's a bullet somewhere lodged inside the body. Right. And one of the most amazing things I think a lot of folks on this, in this group have probably seen countless times is bullets can go anywhere, any which way. 
Uh, and it is just amazing what kind of injuries you can get uh, from a bullet hole somewhere way, way far away. And right. in these circumstances, in addition to getting that blood in as quickly as possible, there are two other major things that can kill someone right away. And that's cardiac tamponade and hemo or pneumothorax. And certainly worry about both of those things in the setting. Right. So the C, we're focusing on the C, right, Patrick? The circulation is winding down here. And it could be from blood loss. It could be from tamponade. It could be from tension pneumo, right? Yeah. Tell, those are the tell us topics. quickly... Tell us quickly the physiology of crepitus. Why does that matter? How does it happen? Yeah, so uh, again, we, this penetrating wound uh, caused some injury to the lung, whether it's lung parenchyma, airway, et cetera. That, lung, that air has escaped from the lung and has made its way into the chest wall. And that crepitus that you feel is actual air within the soft tissue in the chest wall. And that's extremely important because you talked about, again, we're they're, talking about losing this man, this man is, 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 uh, is in the process of trying to die. And so being able to recognize the possibility of a reversible cause like tension, pneumothorax or hemothorax is extremely important. So that's why that physical exam finding really matters. Right. Anybody else before I keep going? Yeah, Mark, with, uh, let's talk about shock index. Cause that's a really, really good, quick, uh, quick and dirty math, uh, um, problem that we can, um, that Aaron mentioned. Um, Aaron, if you want to chime in, go for it. So a great measure of uh, impending shock and hemodynamic collapse, which takes into account the heart rate and the blood pressure, right? So um, his, my, my shock index right now is probably um, 0.5, right? My heart rate 60, my, my blood pressure 120, Heart rate of blood pressure is 0.5. So anything over probably 1, 1.2 is severe shock, and his is 1.4. So heart rate of 120 over pressure of 80. Um, in, in this guy with ultra mental status and, and a BP under 90, I don't think we need to even think about the shock index. He's hypotensive. He has ultra mental status. We need to resuscitate quickly. But I think it's a great measure of impending cardiovascular collapse. Peter or Patrick, anybody, yeah. David, want to comment on that? You know, I, I I thought that was thought that was great. Um, I had a, I did have a quick question for the group, and I apologize. I had a power outage, or I, I may have missed what Patrick had mentioned just a second ago. Uh, but my question for you all is that, like, I know that we're, we're we're jumping towards blood right this second. But Patrick, let me ask you a question: What's to say that this guy just doesn't have a tension a tension pneumo? How are we so sure? I mean, I, I know at the end of the day what's going to happen to this guy, but how are we so sure that it's not it's not just tension that's causing his problem? Yeah, uh, you know. that's exactly right. And that's, you know, something we mentioned, the two things that can kill him besides his exsanguination right here, right now, within a minute or two is that tension physiology in the chest or pericardial tamponade. And so we don't know that. Uh, you can look for different uh, physical exam findings, like lack of uh, lungs, uh, breast sounds, um, JVD, uh, shifting of the trachea, et cetera. But those are not very, uh, uh, oftentimes not very useful and sometimes can be extremely difficult uh, to suss out. And so that leads us to a next question, which I'll probably turn back around to you guys uh, for out in the field is when is it appropriate to, you know, prophylactically, for instance, uh, decompress the chest and is, you know, there's a hot topic, ne needle decompression. How long is the needle? Where do you have to put it? Um, what's the risk of iatrogenic injury if you're wrong? Um, yeah. 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 Such good questions. And we probably can't address that in detail today. Um, we'll see what happened here with this patient and maybe again, for another day, that's a, that's an hour long discussion. I think Peter. Yep. 
Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I was gonna say that. Yeah, this uh, many many EMS systems do it differently, um, but we we would all agree, I think, that some of the tools that we currently have in the field um, need, need to be modified, and that's why I think that as a later discussion, talking about needle versus finger, um, because the world is really moving towards we can do in the field what the initial resuscitation looks like at the trauma bay. Um, and so I think that's really something that I'm excited about as a medical director, being able to give uh, my folks the tools that they need to do what you guys could do for those first 10 minutes in the uh, trauma bay. I, I have to put in the ultrasound plug um, here because with, in the, with, with some experience, detecting pneumothorax and hemothorax and tamponade would be possible with the bedside ultrasound. It's, I, I don't know that the equipment is there yet to do it well in the field in terms of the resolution and the size and the expense, but this is the role for it. Um, Patrick, any comment there before we move? You're exactly right. Ultrasound is an extremely valuable tool and it is an extremely sensitive and specific resource for looking for uh, something like tension. Uh, well, excuse me, looking for a new more hemothorax specifically. Patrick, if it was a trauma bay and you got who, who shot are we really pulling out the ultrasound or are we just going to put, do a finger, a finger thoracostomy? Exactly. I mean, it's it's, it's a great gonna, question. It's we're going to do question. a bilateral. I mean, at least in my situation, you know, depending on the injuries, if it was a blunt trauma or whatever, we just do double fingers and, and go from there. Um, and so the question is for the people out there listening who don't have ultrasound. Um, just most. Right. It, 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 it's a great tool to have, but it, it still wouldn't change our, our care here right. more than likely. Nor did yeah, and, and if this patient rolled into the trauma bay, we'd, there's a huge difference between someone who's peri-arrest uh, and who's not. And if they're not peri-arrest, we'll march right through our uh, ABCs and, um, and ideally get a chest x-ray that'll give you tons of information. You can also use an ultrasound too and get a lot of the similar information. Uh, if they're peri-arrest, and I think we can, we'll, we'll move on to that in a little bit too, the idea of bilateral finger thoracostomies is, is real and, and is uh, something that we frequently employ in the trauma bay and a and, uh, very worthy discussion for the pre, uh, you know, the uh, pre-hospital type setting. Mark, great, great point, great point. At this point, well, Joseph asked a, I have the same question. Has, have, have fluids been started at this point? We're 15 minutes so, in. No. So what we'll see is the 16 gauge that she put into the arm uh, fails. Let, let's move on to the access next, and then we'll address that, David. Good question. Great, thank you. Let's get the IO in. Let's get him ready for intake. Let's just get him ready uh, for all his monitoring, make him naked. Uh, little right. pressure, bud. Just an interesting comment. This guy's not moving. He didn't move with the IV stick. He's not responded to them. He grunts with the flesh of that IO. Just a quick point. That was a test of his mental status. There's a way to overcome that pain, which in this moment, I don't know that anyone's going to take the time to do, but some lidocaine in the IO. I just wanted everyone to note uh, that he, his one test of consciousness was the pain of infusion with that first flush of the IO. Um, so trauma, trauma workup, two 16 gauge IVs is what we always want, right? It seems like an easy thing to do. The first 16 gauge failed. They moved straight to IO. Uh, go ahead, David. No, and his mental status should make everyone on this call, uh, very anxious because yep. that is, uh, in my experience, an impending sign of, of perhaps death. Uh, Absolutely. And, and I want to jump into, and, and something else that makes me extremely anxious is intubating this patient. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, if he needs to be intubated, he needs to be intubated. However, uh, you have to be darn sure that he needs to be because a patient like this, uh, who's in hemorrhagic shock from whatever cause, and or may have some type of uh, cardiothoracic injury to the lung, the heart, or the great vessels, um, can be put into just straight into cardiovascular collapse when when intubated. And the rationale, the reason for that is, is really twofold. Number one is giving medications for uh, to sedate and paralyze the patient. RSI meds will decrease the sympathetic tone, uh, will increase the size of your tank. That the blood pressure can drop significantly in that setting. But even more importantly is once that patient's put up to positive pressure ventilation, we have to remember that's a complete opposite of normal breathing. You're pushing air, positive pressure air into the lungs. And when you're doing so, you're also decreasing venous return, which decreases cardiac filling, which decreases cardiac output, which decreases blood pressure. And so for patients that come into the trauma bay that we maybe after having the benefit of a lot of the tools and instruments and diagnostic information we have in the trauma bay, diagnosed with, for instance, pericardial tamponade or a massive maybe tension hemoneumothorax, we will not intubate them in the trauma bay. We will avoid that by at all means. And we'll take them to the OR. We'll have access and blood ready. We'll have them prepped. And for instance, if we're doing a sternotomy, we maybe even start the sternotomy if they're pararrest, start the incision before we even RSI them. Because guess what? Every time we give them the RSI drugs and put a breathing tube in, they arrest immediately in front of you. And then it's just a matter of watching that clock and say, how long is it taking me to get into the chest and decompress this heart or the lungs? Um, and can we get them back afterwards? Cause that that's oftentimes written on the wall in these peri-arrest situations. So you gotta be very careful about making that, that distinction about when to intubate. Yeah, Patrick, think, that's such uh, a good point. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think, I think, I, I think we need to focus on that for a second because remember people on this call, remember we've all been ingrained that once your GCS falls below the magic number of eight, uh, that the patient needs to be intubated. Mm-hmm. And, and here you are saying what we're trying to kind of move towards, which is, uh, not to just use a general number and a general uh, number of under eight to just place a tube without considering all the other issues behind it, like you had just mentioned from the physiology perspective. So I think that's a great point. It's great to hear that coming from you. I also yeah, Patrick, and we'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to to this to how they manage that, and you set it up perfectly. David, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask Peter. You know, uh, you also in an EMS situation, which I appreciate, have a limited number of resources. And if you're focusing on airway, you're not focusing on circulation. And so I think that needs to be uh, understood as well. I think Patrick's point is excellent. I've seen arrests post-intubation based upon, uh, you know, the physiology that Patrick described, but also you're taking resources away from perhaps going down the C pathway of addressing the primary issue that uh, is going to cause this patient's demise, perhaps. Yep. You know, as a paramedic here, we're, we're in a pickle, right? Dr. Antevi, you're my medical director and I can't, uh, maybe I don't have blood or, um, you know, he's not breathing anymore. It's a cardiac arrest. I can't save him. He needs a surge. He needs Patrick more than anything. And he's not there yet. What, what am I going to do? I mean, this is a, this is the worst call ever because you get there and you think I, I can't do much for this guy unless, you know, like Cypress Creek did you carry blood. Right. And sometimes you're in that situation where you have nothing to do, but then I'm, I'm going to flip that around on you, Hillary, because for the traumatic brain injured patient, and we know this from the EPIC for TBI study, that we can sometimes do harm to our traumatically injured patients by hyperventilating, hypoxia, hypotension. And we're doing that kind of iatrogenically because we think we're doing better for them 
but we're missing an O2 sat here. We're missing a blood pressure there. And maybe we're staying on scene for too long. So I agree. Sometimes we can't do something and you're hundred percent right. But then there's sometimes that we maybe shouldn't do something, which I love Patrick's comment, because if we have a GCS of five, but the end title's 40, sats are a hundred percent and the guy's breathing more than 10 times a minute, let's just move the guy and let's not worry about putting a tube in him. So I think it's great, great conversation. Or if you're going to, the, the phrase resuscitate before you intubate, I think should be what we follow. And we'll see how that happens here coming up. All right. All right. What you're going to see is the setup of a blood warmer here and infusing the first uh, um, 500 mil unit of whole blood. There's a lot of chatter I cut out on the priority of getting blood in, but they knew they needed to do that from the moment they entered the ambulance. So this will be the process of the first unit. You ready for blood? There you go. Holy crap. I, I'm watching this bag turn itself inside out. It's going so fast. When do you start uh, going to the LZ as well? Since you're your driving? Okay, so we're this two minutes coming. in from the start of the blood infusion. They're calling for another unit of blood. Mark, Mark, is okay? We just pause here. Yeah, let's do it. And notice the doc Peter said, let's see what his pressure is. So he's wanting to know at the end of each infusion, what's the pressure now? What's the pressure now? Because he's thinking, I still want to manage the airway, but I, I can't do it if he's hypotensive. Go ahead, Peter. Right, yeah. And, and, and th this is something that, you know, we, we are very grateful that um, um, our agency, our helicopter agency here, Broward Sheriff's Office, um, Dr. Jim Roach and Chief Heath Clark, we, we have the same exact setup as these amazing uh, folks at, at Cypress Creek. And so um, it, it may deserve a little bit to understand that when that paramedic said, holy crap, he was talking about how fast he was able to get the blood into this guy. And we are very thankful. I know, Mark, I, I know that, you know, you have a, uh, stuff that you don't like to talk about publicly, but I will. I'll brag about you a little bit that uh, we use the device that you created, the life flow. And with, with the Quinflow, which is just that little device that's a warmer and the infuser, we could never get blood in in time, right? Now with the life flow, just like that guy, we kind of, you know, almost invert the bag because we give the, the blood so quickly. So I, I think it, it, it deserves the, um, the knowledge of having the right setup, especially when you're in a situation where the expectation is that you're not sitting on scene for any amount of time. So I just wanted to make a mention right. of that. And, and Patrick could talk about this forever, I think, but the, the value of warm whole blood cannot be understated. So this guy's getting a hemostatic resuscitation for non-compressible torso trauma. No one can put a tourniquet on him. He's bleeding inside. The best thing for him is to resuscitate him with warmed whole blood. Yeah, where he's got platelet, plasma, and everything together. And this goes into, into him at 38C, Patrick. Go ahead. Yeah, and I want to second what, what Peter said too. That the life flow I've never seen until I came to Wake Med and I saw it used, and I was like, "What is this thing?" And it it, it really is amazing. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out in my conversations with Mark is is why is it not uh, been more widely adopted? It's simple, it's effective, it's it's a really a high quality piece of equipment. And and my hats off to Mark for all the work that has gone into it. So let's if I can go off on a slight, not a tangent, but appropriate uh, on, whole, on, on whole blood. 
So, so whole blood is something that is relatively up and coming. It's been about a decade or so um, uh, in terms of its pre, uh, it's not pre-hospital, but, but trauma center use uh, with uh, more and more trauma centers taking up uh, um, the mantle here. And so why is it important to recognize whole blood? You know, th these patients are, are bleeding. And so what you want to give a bleeding patient is blood, not crystalloid, not salt water. Um, they need blood. And, and the combination of component therapy that we have currently available, packed red blood cells, FFP and, and platelets, uh, really are, are, not the, are not the same. Uh, when you add together uh, these component therapies and you give them in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion, meaning one bag of PRBCs, one bag of platelets, and then either a fifth or a sixth of a six or five pack of platelets, when you match those, you don't even actually get close to, to, to whole blood. The average platelet count of uh, one to one to one transfusion is 55. The average hematocrit is 26%. Uh, that's way off compared to, to whole blood. And so if this patient's losing, um, losing whole blood, we want to give whole blood back and all those good clotting factors and everything that, that comes with it. Um, the, it's, it's almost a shame. I mean, the whole blood was used extensively in World War One and World War Two, and then that went away. And we started fractioning out blood products, which makes sense in a lot of ways, because the vast majority of transfusions, transfusions that happen in the hospital setting uh, are not from massively exsanguinating patients. They're from patients who are anemic and just need red cells specifically, um, you know, or they have their cancer patients, hemophiliacs, et cetera. And Blood banking is also a business and it's a more profitable business when you fractionate blood and then give it in that fashion. And so um, they also operate on really slightly negative margins for the most part. And so it's important to recognize that blood banking is also a business. And so it makes there's there's that push for fractionating blood. Um, but there's a number of, uh, of, of upcoming literature and a lot of it's from the military uh, that suggests at least that whole blood is superior to component therapy and that patients actually may have improved mortality and that they do have decreased overall number of volume of blood given in these traumatic settings. Yep. Patrick, and that one of the studies came out of your own center at UT, Memorial Hermann, that, that showed just that. So compared to component therapy, patients who got pre-hospital or trauma bay whole blood ended up needing less total blood and had improved survival when they severity adjusted them. So there are, there are emerging data that this is the right approach. And certainly there are a lot of military data out there as well. Hey, Mark, now that, now that we have um, the trauma surgeon to prove that the blood um, is what we need on the, on the scene, um, let's have Zach from Cypress Creek weigh in. He's uh, chatting a little bit, but Zach, can you talk yeah. on, on your mic about um, what the challenges were for uh, Cypress Creek and setting up this program? Awesome. I hope he can join by Hi, audio. Can you hear me now? Sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest challenge for our program was the supply in the beginning and it being a new novel concept. Um, you know, how do we how do we get the supply? Where do we get it from? Um, and it wasn't something that anybody was using. So just working through those logistical challenges um, was, was probably the biggest, um, I guess, uh, obstacle to overcome in the, in the beginning of it. And so why, 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 I mean, we all know Texas is the best and the biggest and all that stuff, but why is it easier in some places than others? I mean, if Cypress Creek can do it in 2017, why can't the rest of the country do it? I, I don't know, Peter or, yeah. or, Dr. or Patrick, if you guys want to talk about why, why is yeah. uh, acquiring the blood so hard? 
So yeah, so I, we're we're going through this right now. I can tell you that there, there's there's really two big issues. Uh, number one is that the hospitals, if unless the hospitals are using whole blood, then you have no place to swap that blood out, and ultimately you either use it or you lose it. And I mean, how many of us want to throw blood away when someone went and gave their arm? So you know, we have had a really hard time. Broward Sheriff's Office right now is using blood that no one is taking from them. So unfortunately it's being wasted if it's not being used. We have, we have several lives being saved here in the last couple of months. So it's definitely worth it, that's number one. And then, you know, the second thing is the people who provide the blood. Like Patrick said earlier and other people said, it's a, it's a business. And when you're dealing with governmental agencies, all of a sudden the numbers of how much you're paying for blood are out there in the universe. And so this, this thing called a business is really limiting the, the ability for us to get you know, the contracting in place. So it's not an easy thing to do, but once you get it done, like they've done in Texas, uh, I think you see the value, uh, not just with trauma, but with GI bleeds and, and other uh, uh, reasons people hemorrhage out. Yeah, and it's some, it's some of that research too that's coming out on uh, Store's Life of Whole Blood shows that you can keep it around for a lot longer than we originally anticipated, uh, that the clotting factor, platelet activity, et cetera, stays uh, a quite high. And a lot of that work is actually still coming out of yep. Houston from Dr. Cotton and, and the rest of the crew there. And you know, the other thing is about supply too and safety. So uh, the typical whole blood that's administered is, is type O blood is RH negative. And at this point in time, the standard approach to giving that blood is to a male patients only um, or uh, and to avoid giving that to patients or women of childbearing age. And the rationale for that is you want to avoid that RH antigen potentially uh, reacting um, or creating RH antibodies uh, in a woman of childbearing age who might later, even if she's RH negative and then she creates RH antibodies maybe ends up being pregnant with an RH negative child and that can cause a lot of problems in, in utero. So there are safety concerns. Now, a lot of those safety concerns though are, uh, I don't want to say overblown, but probably overstated. And as we continue to move on you know, through these years and more studies are being done, the better we understand that uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, even if a RH negative woman received RH positive uh, blood and went on to have an RH negative child, of which that's a lot of ifs, um, that it's usually pretty safe because once they're getting massive transfusion, uh, that's a, a huge turnover in terms of blood volume. Uh, we don't know, a lot of them don't even become sensitized to that or develop a significant amount of antibodies. And we actually have medication too that can help like Rogam that can treat uh, these patients down the road if in fact there is an issue uh, with RH sensitization. Um, uh, and all that being said, though, we don't want to take this very, we don't want to take this lightly. That's a very serious issue. But those are some of the challenges that have, that have held up Patrick, the widespread use. Those are perfect example. That's helpful. And um, a bit of data out of your own center, uh, Moral Harmon showed that the patients who got whole blood versus uh, component therapy had no transfusion reactions compared to a couple potential transfusion reactions in the component therapy, number one. And I believe the San Antonio experience with hundreds of patients with a, a low titer O positive whole blood has shown a very low risk of uh, RH isoimmunization. So like you said, it's a rare event and, and probably the benefits of the hemorrhagic shock resuscitation outweigh those risks. And, and, and uh, Mark, Mark also, uh, and Patrick, I wanted to mention that low titer O positive blood 
is only approximately 4% of the population. So you have to have a program like the Brothers in Arms program where you actually are not only um, finding people in the community, even within the service, if you will, but then having the blood bank and put that aside for pre-hospital use. And so yeah. I think that there's a lot of logistical con uh, considerations when you're considering a whole blood program. And again, the folks in Texas have really paved the way for all of us to, to learn from. I'm O positive, Peter, so I probably need to go out and donate today. I don't know if I'm low titer, but I assume I am. So I'll go out and donate a unit. All right, let's keep going. I, I think I made a mistake and said RH negative blood. I think I, I, I think say, I said RH negative blood. Oh, oh yeah. RH negative, and, and it's you know as uh, Peter mentioned, RH positive. I think I misspoke right. earlier. Yeah, we use O neg as our as our universal donor in the obviously in the pack cells. Correct. All right, and, uh, so got, Mark, we have one question from Jason uh, yeah. here. Zach, can you answer from the start to the street? What was your timeline from concept to first rollout of of the blood program? Yeah, so it was it was right at about a year and a half um, because we had to do all those things that, that the docs just mentioned. We had to identify a population um, that we keep them on a schedule so that we can we do carry uh, low titer O positive whole blood here. Um, and then to the point about the, the RH factor, talking with Dr. Holcomb, uh, Memorial Herman, uh, San Antonio, all the people that, that Dr. Peel mentioned, it, we just decided, you know what, these patients need the blood or they're going to die. And yes, those complications uh, can happen. They they can be bad, but that the risk just outweighed. Or the, the benefit outweighed the risk. And uh, to this date, I think we're somewhere around 450 patients that we've administered blood to. And um, that we know of, we've not had any any long-term complications from them, re them receiving um, O-positive whole blood. And Zach, who's your supplier and how do you work with them? Because I think that's a huge hurdle. That's what uh, the docs have just been talking about. So we use uh, the South Texas Brothers in Arms out of San Antonio. Um, we did have another partner prior to that. We were encountering some logistical challenges. Um, most of what everyone here today has talked about. Um, so they usually will ship it overnight. Um, that we know of, I think, off the top of my head, I think in, in the four years, we've only had to um, not use um, like two units. So we're, we just don't, we're just not wasting it. We use it a lot. Now, I will say, okay, you're coming down to that you know, six hour window where my blood's going to expire that you may have the inclination to like, ah, yeah, the patient doesn't really need it, but I don't want the blood to expire. So I'll give it, we've not had any issues of that either. We've just, it's just worked out where we've kept our supply and demand perfect. And that just comes with time and seeing how many patients are giving it to each month. Got it. Go ahead, Mark. Great. Thanks, Zach. That's super helpful. Um, real world, world experience you're sharing. Um, we, I, I would love to talk about the intubation technique and the prep for that and all that for the rest of the time, we can't focus just on this, but you'll see a few sequences here. Um, they've got, they've given him a small dose of ketamine. Um, to Patrick's point, uh, the, the sedative can alter your hemodynamics. Uh, in general, probably ketamine is a better choice here. They give a low dose. They're prepping the succinylcholine and they're gonna continue to resuscitate him before they put the breathing tube in. Probably look at five ketamines yeah. given. Let's drop our sucks and be ready for that. We'll get them intubated after we open his chest wall. You ready, Joe? Come here, Todd. Is that? We'll give him one. Downward. There you go. Perfect. Good enough. All right. Then pull apart. Okay. Yep. Pull apart. Hard. All right. There it is. Uh, significant hemothorax on the left. All right. Put your finger in there and just get it as wide as All right. you need it. Patrick. Right. The sequence here was one unit whole blood. 
get ready for intubation, open the chest, another unit going as we speak. What do you think about that sequence? And I, I think the, uh, we don't know an immediate post uh, chest decompression blood pressure, but it seemed to have improved his hemodynamics along with the resuscitation. You got any comments there? I think in general, that's the right approach. Uh, certainly maybe another unit or two might be helpful to bulk them up. Um, and then opening that chest uh, first, if that's the, the route they're going to take. And if the patient's uh, completely attended, certainly a finger thoracostomy is a, is a really, a, I think, a pretty good move here um, so that you decompress that tension physiology so that when you do intubate and give that positive pressure ventilation, uh, that you re decrease the risk of cardiovascular collapse. Yep. Um, Peter, they gave him 25 milligrams of ketamine, uh, and he didn't budge with that uh, incision and finger thoracostomy, which is a painful procedure, whereas he had grunted with the IO. It could be these more hypotensive at that point, it could be the ketamine was working. Do you have any thoughts on the dosing there and the use of ketamine in this situation? Yeah, no, and I think, I think Zach uh, made a comment earlier, and I, I would love to hear more about it, but the, they, they actually lower their dose uh, during, uh, for patients with shock for ketamine, uh, for those who are hemodynamically unstable. I mean, m many people who think of ketamine think of, hey, it's, 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 uh, it's hemodynamically stabilizing, if you will. Uh, but I think that they kind of very elegantly have modified their, which is not easy to do, by the way, because then you end up having a protocol that is this way and every way. So that's why I, I comment to him, to him, that's a next level of thinking. It's a next level protocol, in my opinion, that they gave the ketamine at, at, at a shock dose and then gave succinylcholine, um, you know, but the fact that they're giving a medication, the, you know, obviously ketamine is the right medication to be used in this particular situation. Um, and, and, and clearly they were worried about the guy's hemodynamics, basically because of what Patrick mentioned earlier, that you do all this great work, you give blood, you do the finger, you got this guy, and then all of a sudden you go to intubate him and then he crashes and burns right in front of you. Uh, so I think they, they threaded the needle beautifully. So great job, Zach. If you want to comment, Zach, uh, unmute your mic and you want to give us some more detail. Yeah, give us a here. comment, Zach. Yeah, I mean, so we just, you know, we understand that these patients are very catecholamine depleted. To Dr. Georgioff's uh, point earlier that, it, you know, if we give this guy the standard two milligrams per, per kilo of ketamine, he's, we're, we've essentially put him in the grave. Um, and so if we are going to go ahead and do these procedures and these things in the field, we've got to do them the right way. Um, so just understanding the hemodynamic instability. He's not a GCS of three. Um, but you know, so the, the lights are on, but nobody's home, but it's, this is still painful. Um, so we, we want to be careful with how we administer the sedation. Um, and so I think the crew did a, the, the perfect, uh, a dosing for it. We talked about shock dose ketamine, not just in our trauma patients, but in other hemodynamically unstable patients where we do need a fluid resuscitate, um, uh, prior to innovation. Um, and so we've, we've had a lot of good luck with it for sure. Yeah, I think it was perfectly, perfectly done. Go ahead. Peter, what would be the dosing for uh, pediatrics? How would you uh, go about thinking about dosing in, in terms of low dose uh, uh, ketamine? And is that even thought of in the PZM EMS world? You're on mute. Peter. Yeah, no, um, you know, normally uh, our, our protocol now is for the adult, it's, it's 200 or two per kilo IV, slow IV. Um, and so you see that they, they gave a, a minuscule fraction of that. Um, and, I, and I would say that um, that's not even discussed in the pediatric uh, world, right? I mean, I can remember a case where I had a kid who got shot in the chest and, they, and the parents rushed him into my emergency department. Um, and we were doing the same exact things that are being done here, the blood, the, the thoracostomies, the whole thing. And we intubated him, but we did not um, 
even consider a lower dose ketamine uh, in that particular, and, 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 and in all reality, I didn't use ketamine in, in that particular case, uh, but just, it just, it opens up a lot of great discussion here. Yeah, and I, I don't know that there's a right answer. I, I tend to go higher on the doses of ketamine in general, but I think a one per kilo or half per kilo dosing in this situation, if this were an eight-year-old, would be reasonable. I agree. Um, yep. <clears throat> all right, let's keep going. Cannula on to get him doubly oxygenated. Well, I have I to just comment there. The cannula plus the face mask, super pre-oxygenation. Love it. Uh, we're not going to get into the airway as much, but just this was well done. Okay, sounds good. Well, he's 96 on ours. Um, I just want, I don't think he's got an oxygenation problem. I just know that when we intubated, he'll arrest. Right. One more time. When we get him intubated, he'll arrest. He doesn't have an oxygenation problem. Just again, the, the stuff that Patrick was talking about. You want to focus on the airway. A comes before B and C alphabetically, but in this patient, if we don't get him resuscitated, he's going to arrest. And, and that is mentioned several times in the course here. So thinking about the airway, prepping him up, but, but uh, resuscitation first. And, and Mark, before you continue, I have a question for everyone and, and really mainly Patrick here is, you know, as far as the blood pressure, um, what is the, your target blood pressure here so that, you know, we're not washing off any clots and we're not, so in other words, is, is there a, a Goldilocks zone here for you? Um, I know earlier you said that maybe he, he can get another unit or two, but is there a certain blood pressure here that you would target and are you worried about going uh, um, exceeding that target? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, typically that answer in the literature is usually systolic blood pressure of 80 or 90, people think is sufficient. Uh, other ways to assess for that is, do you have a radial pulse? If you have a radial pulse, usually perfuse pretty well, and certainly a patient's mental status as well. Um, so going much higher than that, you're exactly right. You're, you're referring to this, the phenomenon of potentially busting off any clot that you've created and you want to avoid over resuscitation as well. So there is a Goldilocks zone and that's a, a tough place to be because you're not exactly sure how that patient's uh, going to react and how well they've compensated so far up to this point in relation to their blood loss. Yep. And, right, so, uh, yeah, go ahead, David. A 96% considering he's on a non-rebreather and nasal cannula oxygen, that's not, a, that's not a normal pulse oximeter reading. And do you see that in shock and, it, and is it concerning to you? Or is it- Yeah, I, I think we don't know if, the, if he's just so poorly perfused, if it's not picking up well or whether that's real. You're probably right that there is some component of an oxygenation problem. I don't know that, we can't see the monitor, so I don't know the answer. Maybe Zach remembers this one, but uh, it's a good point, David. Okay. Um, I wanted to point out to the question of blood pressure that it's controversial. There's lots of targets. It's hard to titrate it. The, the data, I think from UPMC, Frank Guyette and others showed that pre-hospital intubations with systolic under 100 had much greater risk of cardiac arrest and death. So uh, pre-intubation at 100 is potentially a reasonable target. With TBI, Patrick, maybe you could just comment briefly on this. We get used to thinking hypotensive resuscitation means 80 to 90. But if your brain's injured too, it's got to be higher, or probably if you're elderly, and maybe 100 to 110 is a more reasonable target. And I think those nuances are tough to are tough in practice. They're probably tough in the trauma room. They're even probably tougher in the trauma uh, resuscitation in the, in the pre-hospital environment. So titration of the right amount of volume to get to that target pressure is probably a, a good goal. And, and Mark, the actual epic for TBI study, when you look at the appendix of that paper, 
you really find that the actual values, because for some reason it wasn't in the main body of the paper, the, the, the ideal blood pressure systolic on presentation to the emergency department with the best outcomes was about 125 yeah. for the head injured patient. Exactly, it probably needs to be higher. But in this guy, if you get him to 125, yes. Patrick, you're going to bleed more into his chest. I mean, it's such a different Correct. spot. It is. And that, that's the, exactly the Goldie spot zone, right? Well, it, zone. And, and this being a penetrating injury, uh, you know, with a, a discrete uh, lesion on that left chest there, you can hopefully uh, ascertain that, you know, the likelihood of a TBI or another traumatic injury. You know, it's a lot different right. than a, a big MVC Correct. or something like that as well. Right. I have one other question. Do you know how far out we are, how far away we are from the nearest medical center that they're? They're heading so to. what they're doing, Patrick, is uh, they've already called in helicopter from your old uh, uh, center um, and are going to meet them. So he will. Understood. It's been it's been the, decided to fly him down to the trauma center. Um, so they're meeting. I believe this vehicle's in motion currently, and they're going to meet the helicopter to fly him downtown. Hey, Mark, we got a question from Susan about: um, Do we ever get an entitle reading? And um, Docs, uh, do you guys talk about entitle and how it affects yep. uh, how we treat this patient? I think it's a, a super reasonable um, uh, question. I don't know it pre-intubation. We'll get one immediately upon intubation that you'll see. It would be nice to know at this point. I'm guessing it's going to be low. I always wonder when you're running a high flow cannula and a mask whether we can really actually measure the entitle effectively or not. Anyway but I'm open to comments on that. Any, any of you other guys or Hillary? We, we talk, yeah, we talk a lot about um, apneic um, patients, you know, a, a cardiac arrest. If you're putting, first of all, you have to understand the way that the entitled nasal cannula works, right? You have to be breathing to be able to get that oxygen in into your system. So um, if you're pre-oxygenating uh, an apneic patient, you have to use a regular uh, nasal cannula. Um, that's something when we first started doing that in my agency, we realized, um, I mean, is this guy still breathing? Is he, yeah. you know, in yeah. rest? I think we still have some, yeah, spontaneous respiration. So yeah. Zach, uh, Zach just commented that pre-intubation, his ETCO2 was, was 32. So, okay. uh, normal range there. Right. Or a little low. I mean, you would expect him in shock to have a slightly lower one. Sure. Anybody else comment on that end title before we move on? Yeah, I was going to say that the other other benefit, I mean, uh, I think Entitle is, is significantly underutilized in, in the pre-hospital setting. And I, I try and stress that um, even if a patient, for example, a patient having a seizure, what have you, it's always, those are good sedations and so on. But I think that the Entitle also gives you a rate. So beyond just the number itself. So we have a DSI protocol that we actually utilize that Entitle, not just for the reading, but we, we find out what, what is the patient's native rate um, so that after intubation, we have some idea of where they were prior to intubation. And this is, not, this is not specifically talking about trauma patients, but it gives us an idea after we gave the ketamine, before we gave the paralytic, what is that patient's native rate so that when we do paralyze and go to positive pressure, that we have some kind of range of where that patient was doing on their own. So just that. Good thought. Good thought. All right, let's keep going. I just want, I don't think he's got an oxygenation problem. I just know that when we intubate it, he'll rest. 99 over 60. Perfect. So we, so we got blood going into both. That one going over there. Keep it on. Okay. We got another blood pressure going, 100 over 63. I am convinced that with the continued infusion of blood products that he will hopefully, and we're going to resolve his tension pneumo, he won't arrest. We got one more blood pressure. Okay. So they just seven. talked through the whole thing, uh, Patrick, that you gave us earlier. He's going to rest unless we get his blood pressure up. And this was the, the, he went from 80 
to 99 to 100 something to 119 immediately pre intubation. That's with about two and a half units of uh, full blood. Okay, let's go. Let's push this to Cinepolene, Nick. Sucks. TXA, do you? No, sir. All right. I got 104 with Jake's back with 100 Aren't we at 82? All right, epiglottis. Let's go a little Neighbor. deeper. There you go. All right. Sure. All right. There we go. Um, he's intubated successfully. His end title's like 45. He gets shipped off to uh, the trauma center is operated on immediately and lives thanks to the work of this crew. So uh, I know we're running short on time. Any comments from the team here on this last sequence? Any comments from the audience also? Uh, time to chime in guys and gals. If you uh, wanna type a question in the chat, there's so much here uh, to talk about. Um, nothing's off the table. What I love, and I think my overall comment on this case, is that this guy was going to be dead anywhere else. Anywhere yes. else, this guy's dead. Yes. And the fact that I'm looking at the back of an ambulance and I'm thinking, I'm feeling like I'm in the trauma bay and they're doing everything just picture perfectly um, is a beautiful thing. And if, if anyone out there who is an EMS professional doesn't think that you know th this can be done, just look at this video. It's just, it's incredible. Uh, and thanks to the folks at Cypress Creek for allowing us to utilize this and teach other people. You guys are going to change the world for this. Thank you. Really One quick comment. One more bit of data out of uh, Patrick's old center uh, suggested that there was a sweet spot of pre-hospital time in torso in severe tor torso trauma with hypotension of about 30 minutes. Less than that, fewer interventions. People didn't do as well. Much longer than that, people didn't do as well. And this entire sequence took exactly about 30 minutes. And so he, he got resuscitated, he got intubated, he got access, he got decompression and he got flown to definitive care. So it, it probably couldn't have progressed much better. This case, this case should be the exemplar for all agencies around the country to carry whole blood. I mean, this, this, yes. is, a, this is an exemplar case of a save and um, makes you think that this should be uh, standard of care, in my opinion. Yeah, and Kelly just, David, that's great. I'm quoting you right now. Um, Kelly just said, um, maybe showing this uh, to more people and getting the video out there would convince other medical directors around the country to do this. I don't think a medical director probably needs much convincing that whole blood is necessary, but we certainly need um, more cooperation and collaboration uh, like Zach had in, in Texas among the state regulatory agencies, the blood bank, the hospitals, the trauma surgeons and everything. So. Um, outstanding points being made right yeah. there. You know, you can talk about it and you can watch, uh, you, can, you can read literature and, and, and read opinion pieces, but when you see a real patient video like this and you see a save and you see an outstanding crew working together, communicating together, um, using uh, modern resuscitation tools like Mark's device, uh, it actually is thrilling to watch. It's just a thrilling experience totally to watch. Agree this team work together and, and make really good decisions uh, that, that led to the saving of his life. And perhaps uh, this case can be used as a bridge to um, convince other agencies to, to use this kind of um, pre-hospital experience. Hey, while, while we have the, the surgeon on the phone, Patrick, can you just give 30 seconds on, okay, so he's packaged up, he shows up in your OR. What happens there? It's a ministry to everyone. What, what, the surgeons provide the definitive care. What are you doing in, in 
let's assume he had a pulmonary artery injury, for example. What, what does that look like? What do you do as soon as you get to him? Yeah. First, uh, second, everyone else's uh, comments. Amazing work. Amazing work and amazing video. Amazing re learning resource. Uh, so quickly into your question. So this patient would, um, I think we'd start certainly with getting our ABCs. Uh, sort it out, um, expose the patient, make sure there's no other holes anywhere, get a chest x-ray, uh, get a uh, performer fast exam with a focus on the, on the heart, rule out any pericardial tamponade. Uh, in the absence of pericardial or, or absence of cardiac injury and in the presence of a, high, a large amount of, of bloody output, assuming we put a chest tube into that finger thoracostomy site, that patient would be taken to the OR for a thoracotomy. And uh, depending on what we find, uh, we may need to do a wedge resection uh, of the lung. We may need to over so large uh, bleeding vessels, pulmonary artery, pulmonary veins. Uh, and in the worst case uh, scenario, um, a pneumonectomy, which is as a mortality of 50 to 70% if the bleeding is unable to be uh, controlled. Mark, we've got a couple questions um, yeah. from, from Tyler. Um, Tyler says he's had, he's had clinicians talk about calcium being put in the whole blood um, and some studies out there. What is the group thing about um, um, calcium? Yeah, so the TCCC guidelines for the military advocate a gram of calcium after the first whole blood unit. So remember the blood is citrated. You don't want to mix the calcium in the, in the blood, but, at, but the body needs that, that citrate once it's infused will bind up the ionized calcium. And so replacing that, especially with multiple units, thinking ahead, getting calcium into the patient, a gram of calcium is, is super important. Um, Zach, uh, I don't remember your protocol on that, or Peter at BSO, do you know what people are using in terms of their protocols on, on uh, calcium administration with the whole blood? Yeah, no, it's, it's nothing we would do in the field uh, at this point in time. So, and remember, we're, we're only minutes away from, yeah. from the trauma center. We've Has got- we, get, we give calcium liberally. Um, once you start transfusing blood, whether it's a component or whole blood, we'll give it. It's not going to hurt, uh, and it can definitely help. Yep. We've got a great question from Lawrence who said, uh, the medical director's on scene. Does that change any standing orders for the medics? Can they do everything without that doctor on scene? And Zach answered, I want everyone to hear this. Medics normally do this without a physician on scene. So the answer is, um, these are orders for uh, the medic finger thoracostomy included. Um, I have to shout out. Yeah, I have to shout out to Finland. We have a, re a audience member from Finland who uh, maybe going to change the practice in Finland because of you guys. So terrific. And um, one question from Tyler again, Mark: How much volume of blood does the life flow infuse in one minute? Uh, it's the 500s went in. You can look at the timestamps on this uh, video. It was a little less than two minutes, I believe. And Zach can correct me if I'm wrong, but just under two minutes for the 500 mil unit. Not Great. that it always has to be that way, but a peri-arrest patient needs that blood about as quick as you can give it. And when you have, depending on the access you have, that may not be possible by another means. And uh, we have a request from Rob, our um, Twitter uh, fiend over here. Can everyone put their uh, cameras on so we can get a nice uh, shot of, of everybody, the, the big Brady Bunch, that will be great. And uh, we have another question from Stephen. What are your thoughts on getting blood for a department that is five to 20 minutes from a level two or 15 to 20 minutes from a level one? I think, I, I mean, my, my opinion is even more important in that situation because that's the, that's the window, that 30 minute window is the, is the window for non-compressible torso hemorrhage that you can make a big difference by getting blood into the patient. 
uh, again, I take anybody else's opinion here, but. Dr. Peel, I wanted to jump in first. First, thanks everyone for the kind words and, and showcasing our paramedics and what we do here. I would say um, that we have level two trauma centers in the, within the area, but very rarely is the blood uh, readily available. And our goal is to bring the emergency department care into the field so that we can um, do what, what they can, you know, to the best of our ability and get them to the operating room as quick as possible. Um, yep. Trauma surgeon can't do anything if we bring them a dead patient. And so, you know, that's one of the things why we try to get them resuscitated, intubated in the field um, so that then they can go, you know, do what they need to do. Um, and I, I wanted to, to jump in on the, um, you know, the life flow and the lives it's, it's saved here. We have countless cases like this where patients, had they been anywhere, anywhere else, uh, had they not had blood, and had we not got the blood in within minutes of arrival, they absolutely 100% would have died. And that's not my opinion. That's facts from the trauma surgeon and the facilities that we use. Um, so there's, there's, there's no reason whatsoever that you should not be using uh, cold blood in the field. Just before you speak, jumping in, I'm doing the PR for today. So everyone look at their cameras and on the count of three, smile. One, two, three. Sweet, thank you. Rob, and, do you uh, have to have the QR code? I, I don't yeah, have it on ha Do we have a QR code, James or um, Peter? Do you have it from the last? Uh... Uh, yes, yes. I will, I will get, just give me, give me a, a 30 seconds and I'll, no I'll get it up. Sorry Those of that. you who want CE, stick around for a screenshot here. Do you want to give us any other questions off the chat, Hillary, in the meantime? Yeah. Um, the only other one was, um, uh, actually, I think we got all of them because we had the one about uh, life flow um, and uh, medical direction. So everyone, the next uh, case will be presented, um, or the next uh, episode will be the same case. We're going to focus a lot on um, the procedures uh, that we didn't talk about, like finger thoracostomy, as well as... Um, um, the risks of in intubation. Um, so please uh, mark your calendar. I put it in the um, in the chat there for your dates. And um, if any of you have questions about what we discussed today, um, feel free to ask either in the chat or um, you can email um, our panelists directly. Okay, and I got it. Let's see. Great. Let's share that. Um, there we go. Share a screen and. Uh, I hope this is the right one. Let's check. <laughs> I'm, pretty sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it is, but great. I'm, I'm testing it myself here. Do your screenshots now, folks, or take a picture with your camera. Make sure uh, you get well-deserved CE for this amazing case. Yes, and it is correct. All right. Thanks, Peter. You got it. Yep. Patty Curtin said it worked, so we're good. Hey, everyone, have a great day. Um, go out and uh, tell everybody that um, whole blood needs to be part of EMS. Um, I think we all know that. Um, we just got to make it work. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Patrick. Patrick, for joining us. Patrick, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Zach.